Hello and welcome to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. Today we're joined by two other members of the Handmade Network team, Ben Business and Asaf Gartner, both of whom know a lot about web development, which I know extremely little about. The web is the source of a lot of controversy and criticism in Handmade Network. After all, it is an unavoidably massive part of modern software, and we're largely trying to correct the course of modern software. So today I'm hoping to chat with both Asaf and Ben to try to understand the web, get at the heart of the issues with the web, and talk about the potential future of the web. It'd be hard to find better people to talk to about this, as both of them deeply care about Handmade and its lessons, but are also experienced web professionals. So welcome to the show, guys. Uh, It's great to have you both here. Hey, it's great to be here. To start off talking about the web, I wanted to get at uh, your personal definitions of the web. So I personally think of temporary software as my mental model of the web, but there's also other aspects like decentralization, static documents. Obviously, there's this networking aspect to it that's got its own unique style to it. And I just wanted to get your guys' take on your personal definition of what the web is and what it means in principle. Well, so you mentioned temporary software. I mean, that's a component of it, but I don't think that that really captures the entire essence of what web software is because you could imagine running portable software off of a flash drive to be temporary in more or less the same way, but it's not the same thing because I really think the distribution of it is what really makes it web software. It's the notion that you are accessing software that really that lives on another computer. You're like, you're not just downloading it onto your machine. Sometimes you're accessing it more as a terminal. How much of one or the other depends on the specific application, but it's really about that distribution and how like decentralized and spread out the software is. What do you, what do you think about that, Asaf? I think it's largely about the distribution, but also about uh, remote storage. Before the web, we didn't have so much of data synchronization between devices. So that's another major component, I think. Yeah, I agree. That's an important factor. Because I guess if you consider a case study difference between traditional desktop software and web software, like between Microsoft Office and Google Docs, one of the big pitches of Google Docs is that you don't really have to worry about where the files are. You access the software and they're there. And the collaborative aspect of it is a part of that too, I suppose, for Google Docs specifically. But not having to think about having the files stored on your own computer is certainly a convenience for a lot of people that I think they appreciate a lot. Interesting. So it's sort of like a prioritization on the user's machine of of the user interface and experience on their machine and then abstracting from them a lot of the file file system kind of stuff or storing applications, for example, like they don't have to worry about that necessarily. Is that more or less accurate? Like sort of the spreading the notion of an application across many different computers? Yeah, it's not so much about the convenience of it not being on your computer because sometimes you do want that. It's about having more access from anywhere. I see. That makes sense. Yeah, the ability to access the same sort of information, I guess, actually using your phone or your computer as the way that you interact with some system that doesn't actually need that much power locally, necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I once had to fill out a bunch of slides for a presentation in the back of the car on my phone 
on the spur of a moment because my schedule had changed and I was able to do it. That level of access is really convenient sometimes. A far cry from having to remember like, did I put this on this flash drive? How old was it? Did I edit it since then on a different computer? And then I show up to class with an old version of my assignment or something like, yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I, I distinctly remember a high school experience where I was writing my draft paper at the last minute on my phone because I didn't actually do the homework like at home. So it's, it's funny to hear that brought up. But so, I mean, that all sounds pretty good. Like that sounds like an amazing vision, right? But clearly some people have problems with the web. People might even be in this conversation. Perhaps, maybe, you know, who knows? But (laughs) so I want to start talking about problems with the web because I know people who very heavily criticize the web and who don't work in the web aren't necessarily the only voices who are, are critical. I know I've heard Ben rant about things. I've probably heard some mini Asaf rants over the years too, but I think maybe Asaf is less vocal about them. But they're probably varied in there. So I want to get at those issues. What topped the list of the issues when considering the quality of the user experience and everything having to do with it? Well, if we're talking about the user experience and sort of the reasons that we are frustrated with web software, I think that's probably good to cover before we would talk about why. Many of us, I think, would agree that web software is often slow. It's often unreliable. From a developer perspective, it's often very difficult to write is kind of a a good experience for no one although it seems that a lot of the benefits of the like overall technology and the overall approach do seem to outweigh that in most cases which is really the only reason that people would have chosen to make web apps in the first place i mean the technology is really bad but you could still make the same software on computers from 20 years ago I don't think the web is so bad that it takes us back more than 20 years. So notably, you brought up user experience is generally poor. Things are slower than they should be, maybe less reliable, probably worse for the developer. Why do you guys think that is? Like, what is the, I mean, there's many issues I've heard of, like the idea of these core web technologies that have been maybe reused for something simple initially growing much past their initial scope um, just by many iterations of several generations of people working on them. Culture is probably in there. What's the deal? I mean, the tech evolved from very simple things that were not meant for actual applications, and um, now we have to use them for applications. I think it is good to explore like what specific aspects of the tech are bad or are still bad in, in practice today. Because there's, you know, it, it's not like it's been completely stagnant over the past 20 years or whatever and now this is you know i'm a little too young to go back 20 years in my memory of software development but even just in the i guess ballpark 10 years or so that i've been doing any sort of web development like certainly the situation has improved in a lot of ways but not in ways that seem to fundamentally make it better i mean at least i don't need jquery anymore to patch over differences between browsers, but maybe the problem is actually just that Chrome is the only browser in use today. There are two separate aspects to to the issue. One is just the efficiency of the platform, which is obviously bad. But the second is that a lot of the tools just don't do what you want them to do. Like CSS is not actually good for layout, even if it was fast. 
Yeah. Efficiency of the platform is certainly the one that a lot of people latch onto first, especially considering, you know, if we're talking about web software being slow, well, certainly a large component of that is just the underlying tech being inefficient. Obviously, the web runs on JavaScript, and JavaScript is a dynamic scripting language. Um, It is not the kind of language that you would reach for if your goal was to make something fast, certainly. But that's one of those situations that has, as far as I know, changed quite a bit over the past however many years, where it is still a dynamic scripting language, don't get me wrong. But the work that people have done to make JavaScript engines fast has, in many cases, made JavaScript not really like a true bottleneck on the system. Now, people can continue to write really inefficient software, and some patterns blow up in performance sooner than they would on something else. And there are still, you know, language design aspects to JavaScript that you can't get around, like the single-threaded event loop sort of structure that it has. But it's been interesting in my own experiments to look at how fast JavaScript engines can actually be. And one thing that I've shown people on the network a few times before is a maze generating program to compare the performance characteristics of JavaScript and WebAssembly. And I tried a couple different WebAssembly versions. I did one in Go and one in Rust because those were just some popular things at the time that like were just getting WASM support. The JavaScript one took like 40 milliseconds to generate a maze on average at the start. The Go WebAssembly one, after I did some memory optimizations, was somewhere around like eight milliseconds. So a pretty clear win. The Rust one, I have no idea what happened there. I totally screwed it up somehow and didn't know how to fix it because it was like 400 milliseconds. (laughs) So that's a clear outlier that we can ignore. But the interesting thing was that when I say the JavaScript version took like 40 milliseconds, that was on like the first few runs. And then on like your fourth or fifth time clicking the generate maze button, it suddenly dropped to like three. So it was now outperforming the like WebAssembly version and I timed it against native code and it was at most one millisecond slower than running the exact same, well, the Go version of the program locally on my computer, which I take to be like good enough native code given that I was doing Go stuff in a way that wasn't using a lot of memory allocation. So the JavaScript engine just like kicked in the optimizer at some point and really did a very impressive job. And you see that kind of thing in a lot of places, actually. Like, that's an example of the engineering work that has gone into making JavaScript engines as fast as they are, and probably who we have to thank for making the web usable at all. <laughs> in terms of getting faster over over many iterations, is it because they're loading it into actual native code locally after it's been run the first time? Like, I think the... F- doesn't it do like JIT compilation the first time and then it has like a cached native version or something? My understanding of how, at least how V8 does it, the performance benefits in JavaScript are the best in Chrome using V8. My understanding of how they do it is that they actually have multiple levels of JIT in V8 and they have an initial baseline JIT that doesn't make a lot of optimizing assumptions and is like 100% guaranteed correct. And then V8 will actually watch the execution of the program 
and try to see like, hey, is this function always called with the same type of data or different types of data? If it's being called with JavaScript objects, do those objects have a consistent shape or varying shapes? And after seeing a few examples, it will optimistically JIT new better code that actually makes more assumptions about the data types at play and just has guards in place to bail out to the previous more correct baseline code if for some reason that type assumption is violated. So that means that then you can suddenly like heavily optimize routines with numbers where before you might not have been sure that it would be receiving numbers, but now you've seen it, that function receive numbers many times. And so it optimizes to that. And then you get really quite good performance. I was watching a video earlier. Basically, he was pointing out that the issue with a lot of websites is just the sheer amount of extraneous content that's coming up, like ads and other articles you don't care about and all these massive images for stuff that you weren't actually trying to get comment sections when you're not even really trying to look at the comment section. I, I don't know if you saw the video I'm, I'm talking about, but yeah, I mean, certainly amount of content is a huge factor. <laughs> I mean, bloat doesn't care about how performant your thing is. Yeah. I mean, the issue there is that um, people tend to add a lot of unnecessary libraries and not entirely unnecessary. The situation with analytics, for example, is that every analytics product offers a slightly different set of features and people want all the features. So they use all the analytics providers at the same time. So you get like two megabytes of JavaScript just for that. A lot of what you see with ads and slowness is a mix of like JavaScript and just sort of rendering slowness a lot of the time. Ads load in and cause the whole page to relay out, but also those ads are running horrible JavaScript and cause things to hang. So what's the situation with trackers or analytics? It's like multiple services provide different features and most people want a combination of those features. So they actually load in the same JavaScript from like multiple CDNs or somewhere else basically. So you're, or maybe this, maybe it's local. I don't know, but point is it's more code. Yeah. I see. Okay. The browser is made up of the JavaScript portion, you have the DOM portion, and then you have the actual layout and paint portion. The JavaScript portion is actually the fastest one and has been the fastest part for a very, very long time. At the moment, the DOM API is pretty slow. I mean, just creating DOM nodes in JavaScript and not even using them, that takes a very long time. And once you add stuff to the main DOM tree, and it gets, it does the layout and paint, that's even slower. So you can end up spending 10 to 15 milliseconds or maybe even more just doing layout and paint. Wow. Okay. What's the reason there that that happens to be the slowest part? Basically, web developers asked for faster JavaScript over the past 15 years, and <laughs> nobody actually asked for better performance on the DOM. <laughs> Interesting. So it almost sounds like people thought JavaScript was the bottleneck for a long time. And maybe it sounds like it was at some point. And they asked for faster JavaScript. And then now the bottleneck has shifted and there wasn't as much performance work on that. I'm not entirely sure. We saw, we saw some performance improvements, at least on the paint side. Browsers now use GPUs for a lot of things. Doing stuff with opacity used to be absolutely horrible. Now it's not. It got faster, but not fast enough. 
I'm not sure it was ever really the, the JavaScript was actually the bottleneck, but people tend to do very inefficient things in JavaScript, so it appeared to be the bottleneck. Well, it's sort of Amdahl's law problem of people's own creation, where you write horrifically inefficient code that now takes up the majority of your runtime, despite JavaScript itself not really being the slow part of the system. And now improvements to JavaScript do actually make perceived performance improvements. But if you were writing sensible JavaScript, then that work is, in a sense, wasted. Well, since Asaf was talking about the, the different phases of things where you have like JavaScript and the DOM and then layout and paint, I was pulling up an incremental rendering test thing that I had been doing to test different JavaScript frameworks. And it is really funny to look at a profile of, of uh, what goes on when you like type a, a keystroke into this thing. Because it's basically just, it's searching the Handmade Hero episode guide and just trying to render that list in a bunch of different ways to get a good user experience. And it's trying to do stuff in different JavaScript frameworks to see where the bottlenecks are there. The like completely vanilla way to do it is, you know, you get the keystroke, you perform the search, you create all the DOM nodes for the results, and you put them all into the DOM at once, and it does one layout and paint, and it's done. And it's really fun to look at the timings on this, because it takes, it took me 15 milliseconds to run the whole search of all however many thousands and thousands of annotations, which could be better, but it's, it's fine. Then the DOM API side of things takes about... 1100 milliseconds, so a little bit longer. And that is not actually doing any layout or rendering yet. This is just creating divs, creating text nodes, creating spans, all that stuff. And then it goes into layout and paint, which takes, let's see, from there to the end of the frame when it actually displays things is 6600 milliseconds. <laughs> Considerably slower even still. That's crazy. The, the actual DOM creation and management, not even the layout portion, which is probably true, or what I'm about to say is probably true for that too, but that's native code, right? Like that's actually like C++ and Chromium or, whatever, or Chrome actually doing the DOM stuff, right? Yeah, but you do make a lot of uh, API calls uh, through JavaScript in a loop. So it goes back and forth. It's not... So, so the DOM stuff is bogged down by that a bit. Certainly the layout and paint, that is just 100% browser side. Now, admittedly, this is pages and pages and pages of text that it's wrapping and calculating sizes for. I would expect this to be a slower part of other systems if you weren't, you know, culling things that you wanted to lay out and render. But even so, it is frustrating that you have to spend, I mean, it was 15 milliseconds and then it ballooned to like, over a, th a thousand milliseconds just to do the DOM work. And you would really hope that it wouldn't be, you know, a couple orders of magnitude slower to do that level of work because it shouldn't be too different from the search that I was running anyway. You're looping over less data at that point even, <laughs> although not by much in this case. If you search for the letter A, it returns a lot of results. Yeah, and I have no mental model of how the layout algorithm actually works, but the layout's pretty simple for this like list of results of annotations, right? I mean, if you were to write it yourself, then yes, but the browser can't do that. It has to obey all the CSS rules. Right, because CSS is like this generic layout engine that's uh, you know enforcing all these rules and has all these different features for all these different cases, and that slows down simpler cases in a lot of ways, it sounds like. Yeah. 
as far as I know, there's no optimization step for CSS. You can do the same thing that it does on, uh, on the JavaScript side and say, this is just a list. And every list item takes the whole width of the page. So just optimize it to a simple layout. It, it can do that. Wow. Okay. I guess, where does that problem come into the picture? Is it with the way CSS is set up? Is it a nature of the problem itself? It's a lot of legacy. Although I can imagine a system where you basically have like a new CSS mode, which kind of exists, right? Because if you turn a uh, Flexbox, for instance, suddenly several other properties stop working. Like you can do vertical align in a Flexbox. So what if instead we just had a new mode for faster layouts that you could turn on and it turns off all the old properties and you get a bunch of new properties and you optimize that. So we don't have that. So a lot of the stuff that we do have is legacy. We also have a problem where up until like eight or 10 years ago, most web devs like didn't have even a notion of like a frame or frame rate. Like that wasn't the thing that anybody talked about. There was nothing to like optimize towards. Well, and I think that's probably because as the web evolved out of documents, the sorts of changes that were made to the page through JavaScript were generally one and done kind of things. And we certainly didn't have as much of the like JavaScript running on scroll that's doing something clever. And, you know, now scrolling feels really bad. <laughs> it would be far more of just the like, add and remove a bunch of stuff from the page, let the browser repaint. And now you're just scrolling an image basically again. Now you've made me curious if like, if you could see a performance difference between some of the different layout modes that CSS has now, since things like flex and grid are a pretty significant departure from the typical text oriented layout mode that we have. Yeah, I haven't profiled Flexbox, but I'm guessing you can misuse it and make it worse than the old stuff. Oh, I'm, I'm certain you can misuse it, but be interesting to know. Yeah. And this is just for like static content. So this is like traditional or mostly static content, I should say, since this is like a search box that's dynamic. But this is actual stuff that the web was sort of built for originally or close to it. But how does this compare with the picture of the application-like development that we've been seeing recently with, I mean, for example, you have stuff like Discord, which is, I would assume it's just like a single page that's doing everything all the time or something. Like, I, I have no idea, but I mean, you could say, for example, practically any program. Yeah. Are the performance characteristics different in that case? Does the web actually, is it harmed in different ways, I guess? I don't have a picture of what that would look like. The main difference is that you mutate the DOM a lot. Sometimes you also load additional JavaScript like on demand, but I'm guessing that for Discord, that's not a big deal because it's mostly just one view. But yeah, a lot of mutating of the DOM, a lot of having to be careful about how you do it so that it's not too inefficient, making sure that you can actually respond to user input quickly. It just becomes kind of difficult with the current web, web APIs. Do you think, Asaf, you could dig even a little deeper into what makes that more difficult? What you would run into there that you wouldn't run into in a desktop environment? I think it depends on what exactly you're trying to do. In the Discord case or any chat app, you add messages to the bottom of the window, which means you need to have a bit of smart scrolling so that when you scroll up, you want to load more stuff. 
but you don't want the scroll offset to go crazy when you do add more stuff because you add more stuff to the top. And the web is just not built by default to handle all that kind of stuff. So everyone has to implement their own scroll bars and their own scroll con uh, containers, and it always breaks. Yeah. You, you see a lot of quote-unquote virtualized lists in the web world, which is effectively like the web and DOM workaround for an extremely obvious optimization in any other environment, which is where you just don't render things that are off screen. But rendering means it is in, a, in the document structure. <laughs> so instead of just like conditionally showing and hiding things, you need to just like have, I guess I've never tried doing this as showing and hiding, but I assume there would be no benefit. <laughs> but you know, the thing you see on the web then is like, as you scroll, it's actually like inserting and removing list items as you're scrolling. And certainly it can't do the thing that you would do in an environment where you can just draw things where you just say like, well, what's my like visible range? I can just start iterating at this item, which I know to be the first visible item and iterate to the last one and then I'm done. Not a chance. <laughs> you have to implement that logic yourself, but then things will get sort of out of sync. It's very common with these virtual lists if you scroll quickly to scroll into the void where there are no list items yet because the browser's scrolling thing is like on a different thread and it's just like showing you an image that was already rendered and the JavaScript hasn't caught up yet to actually like insert and remove new things. I mean, at work, we had so many issues with this that we have like two intermediate loading states. <laughs> One intermediate state, I guess, where like you scroll into the void and then because we need to show the user something quickly, we have like the cheap to render thing that we show first and then the actual heavier thing that loads in later. I mean, like you have to do all this stuff that you really don't want to have to do. Yeah, and the heavier stuff is artificially heavier. Like it doesn't need to be heavier. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> The example I'm giving is certainly not just heavy because of limitations of the web. It's our fault, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess there's also a lot of superstition around that stuff, around performance on the web. Like, in many cases, you don't need a virtualized list. You can just have a list. People have this idea that when you want to react to user input, you should throttle that response and wait for the user like to stop typing before you respond. And that's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so the funny thing about that, in the popular sort of reactive programming environment that we have today with frameworks like React or Vue or Svelte or whatever, these things that are designed to like automatically update the DOM in response to changes in your application, those things actually do become more, far more of a factor than you'd want. Like, you'd think, well, maybe it's heavy once to like render all the items in the list, but then if you are doing some user input to that, it's probably not that big a deal. I mean, it's not like you're going to loop over every item in the list again to do this. You're just going to be like accessing specific things that you've already inserted into the document, except in React or something, you're very likely to be looping over every component that is in the document again, whenever any sort of update occurs. So having more things on the page, even if you're not interacting with them, is a liability in terms of update times. Generally speaking, I mean, you can try to get really clever about like which components are involved in an update, but like odds are this is going to be happening. And then the thing about throttling is just the intentions are good there, which is to like to make the 
user's input appear quickly <laughs> and to not just do a bunch of background work that delays the frame and then makes the typing experience bad. Of course, the like most brute force solution to that is to just never do work until after the user's done typing, but then you need to like wait 500 milliseconds after the user finishes typing to do something. And God help them if they're a slow typer, because then it's just going to be hitching all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And it it almost sounds like with these virtual list scenarios, my mental model is that those are layouts that are in some ways independent from the layout of the rest of the page, which is why you can get away with like, oh, start at this item. But it sounds like, I I don't know if this is true. So again, huge noob. But it sounds like that is all forced the rendering of everything inside of that like sub virtual layout is coupled with the layout of actually the external page too, because that's normally how you'd expect documents to work. But when people started pushing it to like, Oh, sub lists and like dynamic content and all this stuff, it's like, it's far more complicated. It sounds like it it certainly can be one thing that the web weirdly lacks, at least in sort of a standard compliant way is a way to easily observe changes to the size of a specific element within a layout, you can detect the window resizing quite easily. But in the case of like a list where the user resizes the window, and now you need to like, you have like a different viewport, possibly for the list that you're rendering, it can be difficult to actually respond to that correctly. And generally, I think a lot of the time you just have to go, you either go with the window resize and probably end up recalculating the viewport a lot more often than you have to, or you do some real weird hacks. And it doesn't help that you can't measure like a, a container unless it's inside the DOM and went through a layout. Right. You can't measure until it's already on screen. You put it off screen somewhere. <laughs> well, well, I need to learn how this works, actually. I know that React actually has a, um, a lifecycle thing that lets you measure DOM elements and basically like kick off another render or other effects before the frame finishes. I think there are some ways of getting in there to measure things before the frame is rendered, but I don't know how that works. And I'm not 100% confident on that. Yeah, the the thing I was thinking is like, a a list is almost like, to me, it almost seems like it needs to be another subtree, like the actual list elements, and then you sort of stick them into another like block node or something. That is kind of how the virtual list thing works in practice, actually, is that like, if you're not doing the virtualized thing, then you can just rely on the usual document layout to give you exactly the results you want. You put everything in there, it calculates the height of the whole thing, and the and it just lets you scroll through them. If you start doing the virtualizing thing yourself, then you need to actually artificially set the like content area to some height, remove all the list items from like document layout, and manually position them and display them just according to your own like custom viewport logic. So you have to actually perform the layout there yourself. Oh, I see. Okay. So you have, this is the block that I, that where I'm going to put this virtual list. I'm going to put nothing in it. I'm just going to make it like 10,000 pixels high or whatever, or something like something, some number that works. And then as the user scrolls, I'm actually going to do my own like JavaScript or whatever to pull the right list items, like and position them basically doing automatically or your own layout. Yes, exactly. Okay. That all sounds pretty depressing to me, (laughs) but we're not quite to the pie in the sky ideas yet. So I want to start with like practical things that people can do to actually improve software on the web. 
in the short term or relatively short term. So what are the actual like low hanging fruit that could just make everybody's experience better? Just stop using frameworks. Don't use React. Don't use anything else. I mentioned earlier that like JavaScript's not really the bottleneck, except in practice, it totally is. So the, <laughs> the problem is that that's the part that people can easily bloat and they have. So that's kind of where a lot of the like low hanging fruit actually is. It's just like do orders of magnitude less work in your JavaScript and you will see a big improvement over what you currently have. Yeah. But also, you know, you have a system that has a fast part and a slow part. Which part do you optimize for? <laughs> do you optimize for the stuff that's already fast or do you optimize for the slow portions? All frameworks don't actually optimize for the DOM. That's at least part of what React is for and those kinds of things where you do like at least the, the rendering component of React figures out what DOM elements it would like to have. It performs a diff against DOM information that it currently has and then it performs only the necessary changes because the DOM APIs are slow. And I think I've definitely seen the sort of dogmatic sort of statement that the DOM is slow many times in sort of React circles. So I do think that they're aware of that, but I think you had more to say. I would argue that React doesn't optimize for the DOM. React tries to provide a certain rendering API and like a view management API. And it's trying to optimize for that API. Now, you can't have that API run properly on the web because the DOM is slow. So it has to go all through all that uh, DOM optimization phase to make that API viable. But the purpose is to provide the API, not to accelerate DOM operations. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I've been thinking recently about a lot of trying to get to the heart of the performance issues that you see with frameworks like React. And it really is the case that the approach to updates that these reactive frameworks take just results in tons of redundant work. Even though in theory, they might not have to, in practice, they absolutely do. I'm still thinking a lot about that myself, and I don't have a ton of like conclusive things to say about it. But it is interesting to see how despite the pro the promise of these frameworks like only making the necessary changes like the minimal changes necessary to your ui in order to like react quickly to user input in practice they're doing so much more work than you would ever get in a just vanilla system we were looking at new reddit a while ago and new reddit is it's a popular structure that uses react and redux and many other tangential libraries around that to support that and like it takes half a second to open some tooltips the reason is because when you hover over the tooltip tons of components on the page update for some reason i don't need to get into the details but that's hardly the like targeted dom updates that you would theoretically be getting from a reactive framework like that so there's a lot of subtle design things in the way that these frameworks are designed, which I think is why they result in so much redundant work. But you, you need to look at the JavaScript code that you're running, look at what is actually like taking up time, and you likely have huge amounts of overhead from frameworks, from just general inefficiencies in your own code. I mean, like speeding up your JavaScript 
is generally speaking a good way to improve your web development experience your your end user experience on the web hmm. so maybe what we need is a new framework that does optimize for for dob interaction <laughs> and then it'll be the last and final framework i promise <laughs> that's that's probably theoretically what svelte is right kind of it went a bit crazy it was simple when it started and i think they added a bunch of like extreme template rendering stuff I, I will refrain from saying anything about it since I've used it for all of eh, three hours. Yeah, I haven't looked into it enough either. What exactly is this? It's a it's another framework. It's another reactive framework. The difference is that it it comes up with a lot of these sort of reactive mutation stuff at compile time instead of at runtime. So, in theory, this should could actually improve the situation by quite a bit. In practice, I don't know and. I don't think that the issue with these reactive frameworks is necessarily that performing the updates is slow. It's that you're updating too much. And the reason you're updating too much is because too many things are dependent on other things. You have a lot of false dependencies in the system, basically, where changing this piece of data should not, in fact, result in an update over here, but it does. And how is the system supposed to know? And I doubt very much that Svelte can actually tell which of these dependencies are valid, which ones are not. But I'm not, I'm not sure. A lot of what I know is just about React specifically, because that's what I have years of experience with, and I'm just new to other things. It does remind me of like the multiple DOMs idea that I was thinking of earlier, because it sounds like that's like a graph cut problem. Like there's not enough graph cuts, so you just have like a, a web, pun not intended, of like dependencies between things that are completely unrelated in, in like in reality but the system doesn't actually know that so it's just like hey i don't know like update everything i think that's one area where, where you could possibly optimize but the main question is why is it slow to begin with why can't we manage a tree of this size on a computer in 2021 it really that is a very important question to ask too because like you know we talk about all these techniques and like Yes, it is true that, you know, there's a lot of overhead from these things, but also it really should be faster to render a list of a thousand items or something. You get up to a couple hundred things and that's where people start going, ooh, that's a lot of things. I don't know. We're probably <laughs> going to have to do a bunch of extra work to make this run fast. And it's like, man, do you, do you realize how few things 200 things is <laughs> to a computer? <laughs> How big of the picture is an education problem? Is it 75% that people just don't actually know how many things 200 is to a computer or, or how big that is to a computer? Or? Well, the, the sad thing is that given a certain set of popular techniques, 200 might actually be a lot of things. Having 200 complex React components in your document at once, if they are for any reason involved in update cycles as things change, that's probably going to be pretty bad. You're going to be like running complex logic to render absolutely every item of the list again in many naive cases. And you can try to suppress that work, but things usually slip through the cracks. I remember, Ben, you posted this form verification thing where there was like a hidden n squared or n cubed something in there where it was basically like there are 12 checkboxes or I don't know how many there were, but it was like not a lot. And it was like hidden n cubed times all this heavy work that has to happen because of various 
technology things. That one, that one was just pure JavaScript stupid and not even React stupid. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> but it was, it was accidentally n cubed. Yes. And it was doing an expensive thing n cubed times. Okay. Basically nice. just allocating a lot of memory n cubed times. Okay. And when I think n was only like 50 to 100, but boy, did that ever blow up. Wow. So it sounds like people just need to keep their eye on the uh, developer tools, which is something you've said many times. <laughs> I've been using React at work for many years now and that has been kind of the primary thing i've used on like serious web software in that sense because i haven't made anything nearly that serious personally and i was chatting with asaf about what are the actual problems here i need to like get a better understanding of this the funny thing then is that at some point he was just telling me like just do a vanilla thing you know just whatever don't use a framework and i was like crap, I don't even know what I would do. <laughs> I, I was kind of embarrassed to, to realize that, that like my whole mental model for how these things are built, like, I don't even know, like, wait, how would you write a large app in a vanilla way? What would the frustrations there be? What would the advantages be? What would, and I suspect that many other people really can't conceptualize that very well either, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's not a trivial thing, so... The thing that you want to avoid, you don't want to have like one architecture or one way of doing everything. Different parts of your app may need different structures. So it takes a while for people to accept that, I think, because all the frameworks just do one thing. You have one type of view, you have one kind of lifecycle thing, and you have one kind of data management flow. And it just takes a while to explain to people that just write the code for the thing that you need at the moment and that in order to learn how to do it you have to rewrite a bunch of code there's no way around that well i mean it seems like that's where the handmade idea is very useful on the website it's instead of thinking about more abstract concepts of you know oh like let me share view functionality with this abstract view concept inside of the code, instead of like coming from that angle, which is sort of like this top-down abstract mental model, it's sort of like flipping that on its head and coming from the bottom up where you're thinking about what is the actual problem I have to solve? What are the constraints on that problem? What are the tools I have to solve that problem? And then like go through that and actually implement it. So a lot of room for using handmade, for sure, it sounds like. That's like day one stuff that people can do to actually make maybe my life in particular with my internet speeds less horrible <laughs> day one stop using frameworks like given what you've defined as the web given the kinds of problems you'd want to see solved on the web or that already are solved on the web what is the ideal version of that like what what are the core architectural decisions that would require throwing the whole thing out or forcing the chrome dev team to do something or you know <laughs> the way i see the web at the moment is that you type something into the address bar and the browser fetches whatever is there and it basically loads the correct application for the data type. So if you load a PDF, you get the PDF viewer. If you load an MP3 file, you get the audio player. And usually if you load some kind of a website, like an HTML document, you get the web engine. 
basically. So I think the like end goal is to make the web engine just one thing that you can launch, but also let you write your own application that you can just launch to the browser. Interesting. So that's like actually throwing out the idea of the DOM um, and all of this stuff, but actually, are you thinking like a sandboxed, here's actually just like some code that you put on in inside of the web sandbox and start running it, basically? Yeah, because right now, even if you use uh, WebAssembly, you load the website and then the website initializes the WebAssembly. But what you actually want is to just start with the WebAssembly and let that load whatever display thing that you want. Now, I think that might be the direction that they're trying to go. The difficulty with WebAssembly in its current state, WebAssembly itself is pretty simple in that it's just a WebAssembly module that has a set of functions in it. It can import things from the environment, whatever that means. In a browser, that generally means getting functions from the JavaScript side of things, from like the website that contains the WebAssembly module. It could also mean getting direct syscalls, basically, from an operating system, you know, getting sort of the kernel interface, whatever that means. And the difficulty is that right now, I mean, every browser API is designed for JavaScript. And this is actually one of the more subtle and difficult problems with JavaScript being the language of the web, is that all the APIs for the web were designed for a dynamic garbage collected scripting language. And that presents a difficulty for how do we use these APIs in other contexts. WebAssembly doesn't have garbage collection. It just has like a memory space that it works in. But what, what does it look like then? And so they're adding features to WebAssembly right now for having like opaque handles to resources that are managed by the platform WebAssembly is running on so that WebAssembly code can have a handle to a DOM element or whatever that is, you know, memory managed on the browser side. But beyond that, even, they're actually adding, I guess I don't know where this is at in the proposal process, but they're adding garbage collection instructions to WebAssembly so that WebAssembly code can interact with a garbage collector provided by the platform, which, to my knowledge, also helps facilitate interaction with DOM APIs. That sucks, kind of. You really would hope that you could write platform APIs that don't require a garbage collector to interact with them, or certainly that wouldn't make the user code aware of the garbage collector if, if that kind of thing were the case. From talking to a friend who works on the WebAssembly team at Mozilla, it sounds like the obvious thing of just let people run a garbage collector in user land in WebAssembly runs into issues with DOM APIs because of like having two separately garbage collected systems with references to each other can create cycles that neither garbage collector can detect. And like, there's all kinds of, <laughs> there's, there's problems present in the system. And that is, I think, one of the like actual legitimately bad things about JavaScript being the language of the web, because like actually computing stuff in JavaScript, eh, not so bad, but the memory model, the execution model, a lot of that stuff, like, that has affected incredible amounts of platform API decisions that now are providing a lot of difficulty as we try to migrate to something better. When Asaf was talking about what the browser actually does in terms of fetching something from 
from a URL that ends up getting resolved to some like IP address or something. And then opening up the appropriate application to actually view that information, that actually just sounded like a file system explorer to me. Like That actually sounded like Windows Explorer, what happens when I double-click this file kind of thing. So do you see a world where the notion of like the local native operating system that I'm using and like this browser thing, which is almost like an operating system in itself, do you see a world where those two things are blended more? Yes. The success of the browser is largely due to the failure of the operating system. Like, you can't safely run applications on Windows. I guess most of it is legacy, but um, actually getting an application to run Windows, like you have to install it. You have to download either a zip file or an exe. You have to install it. You then have to realize that the exe for the installer is not the same as the exe for the program. And the whole experience of getting stuff to run natively on the operating system is just not fun. So if the operating system could solve that, and if the operating system could just fetch stuff from the internet, then yeah, just run sandboxed applications. Well, and that is what you see with browsers, right? You just type in the name of the program that you want, and you're using it. It is so seamless, especially compared to the conventional model. And like mobile app stores are an in-between, I guess, but the web is so easy to access. It's really just incredible. And I think it's also easy to access for developers too. I mean, many people have talked about this before, but if you want to put an image inside of a window in C, might as well forget it to do it on day one. I mean, obviously you can go watch Handmade Hero and figure out over several hours or something, but in HTML, it's like, hey, I put an image tag and there's an image in the browser. You know, once you have the hosting thing, and obviously there's many services for that, you can send a piece of text to your friend and they can go look at your website. And that's, that seems like a game changer to me. You just don't have that kind of thing on, on Windows or any other native operating system, really. I think that's, it's safe to say that that's what got me into programming at all. Well, that and Lego robots. But some of the earliest stuff that I did was my dad helped me make a website for a little project of mine where I had set up Lego characters in the yard and like taken pictures and used paint to like put captions on the pictures or whatever. And it's like a little comic strip. And he helped me figure out how to like make a little website of it and put it up on GeoCities so we could send it to the grandparents or whatever. It's cool. <laughs> it's, it's really now the website was made by making Microsoft Word documents and saving them as HTML. So. <laughs> <laughs> not the ideal development experience. I, I didn't actually had made probably two websites by the time I ever actually started to learn what HTML even was <laughs> just because I was like using tools like that and using some crappy Yahoo page building tool. <laughs> but I mean, like the internet makes us all so connected and just being able to like put stuff on it and share it with people is amazing. I don't know if the operating system picture is going to change, but it sounds like if we want to get to a world where I don't have two different operating systems on my computer and two different ways to get to programs and all sorts of stuff like that, it sounds like you'd have to change. But having different types of content that you can access, that HTML documents can be just sort of one file viewer and PDFs can be another and MP3s can be another. That doesn't actually break the fundamental model of the World Wide Web at all. 
you still effectively just have resources that are accessible by URLs. You can even have platform APIs for navigation and links and history and that kind of thing. I mean, you can click a link on an HTML page to go to a PDF and click a link in that and it takes you to another HTML page, right? We actually like already see even the hypermedia aspect of the web still working even without HTML itself. The thing that's missing is any APIs at all (laughs) to make applications outside of the DOM. The best we have is Canvas. So the Canvas API is like fine in theory. It's basically like an image that you can draw using JavaScript. You make your Canvas, you call your text and circle and fill color and line and whatever methods, or you just get in there and set the pixel values yourself. I mean, that sounds fine, but it doesn't handle like DPI scaling. So you have to write a bunch of platform code now to make it work correctly on high resolution MacBooks versus older normal DPI monitors. It has text rendering, but there's no APIs for interacting with text selection. You can't like build up to like a normal form control or something using any of the APIs that are available to Canvas. There's no accessibility stuff, so you can't doc, you know, describe to the browser here is some sort of like accessible content except the best you can do is just like the alt tag or whatever that describes like the most you could say is like the ui of this program and that's the most accessible (laughs) your canvas thing could probably ever get in the current state of things (laughs) the browser has not provided anything that you really need to make applications except in the dom world that's that's where that stuff all is Interesting. Yeah, I just imagine somebody using a screen reader and like coming to an alt tag and it says the UI of this program and they're like, wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind of bait and switching you guys because I said pie in the sky, but now I'm trying to think about like, how do do we make this real? So (laughs) there's like a parallel problem, which is that browsers are like impossible to actually implement for somebody. So there's no, like the only way that this could actually happen is if you went to Google and said, and somehow convinced them or something, or W3C or whatever, and said, this is the thing that we need, and you're going to do it no matter what. And that sounds like either a massive social effort or completely impossible. I think it's it's a massive social effort, but um, it kind of has to happen. We need to get web developers to write better software. And once you try to do that on the browser you start hitting all the limitations. And once you do that, you can ask for the right things for the browser. Because what happened like 10 years ago is that people started writing more and more single page applications. JavaScript just wasn't really fun. Like the syntax was kind of annoying. So people asked for new syntax and they got new syntax. (laughs) They also got a history API so that you could actually like have consistent back and forward behavior without the browser like doing the full HTTP request, like, you know, load a new HTML document. I mean, these things definitely happen. Well, I guess day one is stop using frameworks. Day two is open the developer tools 
Or may, I don't know which one's first, but point is... Please, let's go the other way around. Everybody already has the developer <laughs> tools. It's so easy. Why does nobody open... Like, just go to the performance tab, click the record button, do anything. <laughs> you have this beautiful profiler that shows you exactly how long every frame is, every function that was called, exactly what the GPU was doing, every memory allocation, every garbage collection. You have snapshots of every frame so you can see, like, every single load and layout shift. Chrome will put bars on it that show you every layout shift. They will like show you exactly how long it was from the time the page loaded to the time that users could interact with it. Everything is there. Just literally look at it ever. That's day zero. <laughs> oh, by the way, Ben, there's an additional profiler for Chrome itself that I'm not sure if you ever used. I feel like I might have seen this like once, but I need to look into it more because that actually shows you a lot of the like GPU processing details yeah, so I use it once to find a bug where if you have a lot of images that are scaled, well, that was 10 years ago, but they had a bug where if you scaled down a lot of images, as you scroll them off the page, Chrome would unload them from cache, reload the full-size image, and rescale it. So if you had an image that was like partway scrolled in and partway scrolled off, it would do it every frame. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Oh, so no. I had to use the actual Chrome profiler for that. Well, I, I need to look into wow. that. That sounds interesting. The funny thing for me is how it's such low-hanging fruit to load up the Chrome profiler and look at what's happening on your page. It's, you know, people do it and they, like, see a flame graph and they're like, it's so confusing. And then they close it or something. Or they just never look at it at all. And it's like, this is the best view you've ever seen of what's happening in a program. It's like, if, if you take two minutes to just sort of like look at what's happening, you will see how it's structured and you will be able to start making judgments about what's going on in your program. You're like, oh, why is the bar for this function twice as wide as the bar <laughs> for this other function that I thought was slow? Oh, well, <laughs> maybe I didn't know what was slow after all. And it's like so trivial. And there's a pattern, like, not even within the web, necessarily, of people trying to pre-game that. It's sort of a different scenario on native stuff, because you don't have a profiler built in everything. But I feel like with web, there's just not really an excuse anymore. Like, <clears throat> my excuse for a while was I forgot the hotkey to open the developer tools. <laughs> I don't think that's fair, actually. And now there's a menu. Pretty lame excuse. Sure, so. You can right-click and click inspect element, and there you are. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. So definitely no excuse. Day zero, look at the look at the profiling tools, or I guess all of the all the developer tools, right? Because don't they have everything like memory and all sorts of stuff, security? But pr first, performance. That was day one. Day two, stop using any frameworks. Just like vanilla JavaScript. Learn how to write apps in vanilla JavaScript. Learn what the actual DOM APIs are, and think about how you might structure an app without using the framework to do that stuff. Because it's not impossible, but you've just never thought about what you would actually do. Mm -hmm. I guess day three would be like, tell your friends about the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Are um, we going to get up to day a thousand this way? I was planning on it. I don't know. You guys have like <laughs> 10 hours, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I actually do see how the pie in the sky could theoretically connect to reality it takes the right parties to make it happen or 
a lot of the wrong parties, <laughs> a lot of people either way to, to make it happen. Once you have that kind of top-down thing where people start looking for better and better solutions, I think it's also important to have um, foundational work down, done on the native side to kind of meet that halfway. So if people want to ask for an alternative to the web engine, you better have like a very good native GUI library that you can use for that. Yeah. People like to pick up on new features and things, often well after they've been introduced. But I'm starting to see whispers of people using the IndexedDB API that's in browsers now, which is basically embedded SQLite. And it's like standard in browsers and has good support. And people are just now being like, oh, we could use like a database and like have indexes <laughs> on things. You know, it, it happens even if it's there. I, I do agree that you really do need people to see the need for better solutions in order to really drive the kind of change you want to see. You said that it's basically impossible to implement a browser. And that is true now. It would not have to be true if, you know, you can imagine the set of dependencies for a better native application development thing being much smaller than the current set of things that it takes to render web pages. If all you need is a set of sort of fundamental like process management, quote unquote, APIs and graphics APIs and UI libraries for providing some standard stuff and a computation thing of some kind, right? You're like program delivery, program launching, program caching, whatever it happens to be. This is a much more tractable set of things if you can have like a good foundational level that people can build libraries on or whatever, where the insane complexity of the current stack comes in today is, well, first of all, just the sheer API surface of browsers and everything that is in like the DOM APIs. But then a CSS engine alone is insanity and you will never be able to do it. The only way to make a functional CSS engine today is to go back in time to the 90s and start working on it. It just can't be done. You will have too many edge cases and problems and like you'll never be able to support it well enough. And in the meantime, Google will have invented a bunch of new web features that conveniently are already in Chrome and that you now have to implement because people are like, hey, why don't you support this cool new web thing? So with the direction that some of these things are heading, with WebAssembly being brought to maturity with WebGL and WebGPU or, you know, lower level graphics APIs, that kind of thing, those are steps towards something achievable. And at some point, you know, my dream would be that a platform like that could be built such that, like, people can just develop all the software they want to develop on that. Browsers can embed chromium or something to handle the like html web engine side of things and eventually it can all sort of be subsumed it's essentially like a large legacy library and it's not really like a burden on people anymore that makes sense so just giving a ramp to like get off of all the old stuff basically and keeping the actual stuff that somebody would theoretically need to implement moving forward at like a constant small size so that you don't have this feature creep, maybe this rapidly expanding set of features that somebody has to worry about if they want to make a browser. I would ever really expect a browser to be like super small 
But at the same time, in the network, we have essence being made by one person. You know, that level of operating system features, it's, it takes a long time uh, and it takes a lot of work, but it can be done. But I think that Knox could probably spend the next 20 years trying to implement a correct HTML and CSS engine and would never catch up because Google would keep running away with it. Right. And with, in Essence's case, um, he is doing basically everything from scratch, like all the UI libraries, everything. I can imagine a browser being, especially if it's if, if the core actual layer is really simple and then people use libraries, that could be a lot simpler. There is some value to having standard platform things, but it's one of the big frustrations of developing for the web is that it's impossible to escape the custom platform things, at least without <laughs> sacrificing basically everything. It's like, well, I'd like to just do my own UI for this. And it's like, well, now you don't have basically any features of the browser anymore. You have an array of pixels. Have fun. Okay. We need to, to work towards um, understanding the platform that we choose to work on top of. And that applies everywhere, including the web. What does it actually take to move toward these, these simpler layers? What does that exploratory space look like in the middle? I know that for my part, there are some projects I'm considering to see what would be possible to like really evolve the direction of web software with more or less the, the tech that we have today. To what extent can you make a native feeling text selection, whatever UI system, to what extent can you replicate some of what people expect in a purely canvas thing where you can escape back to other rendering? To what extent could you provide accessibility? I don't know. I have some ideas about how that might be done, but it's a hack. But there are hacks that we could probably do to push the boundaries of what is possible in a browser without just succumbing to more and more CSS. Because I think that, you know, after the after those initial days of like profile your code, stop using frameworks and understand what the real work is that you need to do. You know, write more efficient stuff and make good use of the platform that's available. Then kind of the next question is like, well, what else is actually like possible on the platform, even if it's more out of reach. There are already examples in the wild of some good WebGL-based web apps. They don't necessarily have the exact same feel as like native browser controls, but nothing on the web is consistent anyway. There's probably quite a lot of room to explore that space of like good WebGL and Canvas web apps. I could even imagine there being almost the QT of web apps or something where you you have structures and systems in place that allow you to make viable web applications without using the DOM, for example. And I don't know. I mean, that's a, a large space. <laughs> Certainly, you still can't get away from a lot of the browser platform APIs and features. There's a lot more to browsers than just the DOM. But I know there's room to explore there. And I'm curious what directions it could be taken. And that kind of work could inform the path that we take to that pie in the sky solution, inform what we even want from that pie in the sky solution, especially since so much of the discussion that we seem to have around these fix the web conversations tends to come back around to the operating system models that are familiar <laughs> and that we actually know to kind of suck for other reasons and that don't have 
a lot of the same benefits that people actually do want from the web. We need to explore that stuff and not just like give up and go back to Win32 necessarily. And everything on the web starts out as a hack. Every established standard today was just a JavaScript hack a few years ago. Yeah, sounds like we need more handmade people or people who are interested in the problem and who want to follow the handmade ideas in approaching web development. We need more of those people to actually start exploring the space because no offense, Ben, I don't think you can explore the entire space of possibilities by yourself. So you might need help. No, you you <laughs> saw how often my like regex builder WebAssembly thing crashes with memory errors. I cannot explore any of it. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I showed it to a coworker and he immediately did a, the most precise sequence of actions to crash my program. <laughs> he just like did the, the most minimal repo repro of the bug right in front of my eyes. He's just like, oh, we'll just select this thing, drag it away and then drop it. And that expression will be gone already and it'll crash. I thought, oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of room for tools for people to avoid cases like that when they're inventing their own UI like like you did for your for your regex builder that seems like a vector in the right direction of exploration there where there's a lot of experimentation happening yeah i think we need to see people do more with that space the the things that i've seen online are basically heavy dom things and small canvas sometimes imgui things and I haven't seen anything outside the DOM that really like approaches the like meaningful complexity and richness of interaction that people expect, even just being able to select text in random places. You know, it's like, where is that? That's what we need. So for any listeners out there, if you want to join Ben in his in his journey, and I mean hopefully a soft too. I don't think we can go without a soft's help, but he didn't explicitly mention <laughs> exploring the frontiers, so <laughs> but may, but maybe he's on board too. I don't know. Are you are you on board, Asaf? Don't, don't undersell Asaf like that. Yeah, I mean, just make a good like native GUI library, port it to the web, and we can go from there. Yeah, awesome. Join Asaf and Ben. In their, <laughs> there in their you go. Conquest of of the web. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually feeling a little inspired now because, like many other people, I really like the web in principle. It's one of the coolest things to be able to like I said earlier, send somebody a piece of like piece of text that they can type into a program that they already have and see what I made. That's a really awesome thing. And evidently it's popular because look at this call we're doing right now. It's amazing. <laughs> and that's with all the bad tech. So imagine with good tech. Yeah. <laughs> be awesome. So with that, I guess we can wrap up and I want to pass it off to you guys and ask like I do with all the guests Anything you're working on? Anything you want to send out to the audience or anything along those lines? Um, I don't have any project that's public, I guess, other than Handmade Network. As for me, I, as I alluded to earlier, I made a regular expression builder largely as, I mean, first of all, because I want a good regular expression tool because I think they're useful and I also think that the syntax sucks. And for self-educational reasons i built it in c and WebAssembly, trying to push myself in that direction it is out in the buggiest possible state and i'll be <laughs> getting that 
fixed up in the relatively near future, I hope. There's also, of course, the handmade network itself and all of our ongoing work around that. Yeah, well, this was an awesome conversation. I, I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody listening did as well. And yeah, I mean, come to Handmade Network and, and improve web software by applying the handmade lessons we have to, to the web. It would be awesome to not have to live in the current web world. Help us explore this space. Help us find out what's possible and help us get that message out to more people. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Talk to you guys later. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.